We are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. The verse in your handout and your worship guide is incorrect, so you'll need a Bible or a favorite reading device. It'll be Matthew 6, verses 1, or verse 1, and then verses 5 through 8. Sorry about that. We are in a portion of the sermon where Jesus is saying, look, even when you practice religious things, you can become legalistic. Right? We talked about giving last week and how that can be done hypocritically. Uh, and a few and later we'll look at fasting after we cover the Lord's Prayer. But this week we're looking how, at how even prayer can be done with legalism, with self-righteousness in view. Um, so with that in mind, if you will stand, we will read these verses together. Again, Matthew 6, we'll look at verse 1. And then we'll go from verse 5 to 8. The word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Years ago, many, many years ago, Steve Martin, one of my favorite comedians on Saturday Night Live around Christmas time, did a little skit. And it was his Christmas wish for the holiday season. Here's what he says. And he does it much better than I will. So you can YouTube it. If I had one wish that I could wish this holiday season, it would be that all the children in the world could join hands and sing together in a spirit of harmony and peace. If I had two wishes I could make this holiday season, the first would be for all the children of the world to join hands and sing in the spirit of harmony and peace. And the second would be for $30 million a month to be given to me tax-free in a Swiss bank account. You know, if I had three wishes I could make this holiday season, the first, of course, would be for all the children of the world to get together and sing. The second would be for the $30 million every month to me. And the third would be for encompassing power over every living being in the entire universe. Wait a minute. Maybe the power thing should be the first. Because, you know, tomorrow the whole world could just explode. That's the first thing, right? And what do you have if it explodes? No, 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 the kids. The kids singing would be great. That would be nice. But wait a minute, who am I kidding? We're not going to be able to get all those kids together. I mean, the logistics of the thing is impossible. For trouble, more trouble than it's worth. So we reorganize. Here we go. First, the power thing. We go with that. Secondly, the money. No, wait. The money. I forgot something. I forgot about revenge against my enemies. Okay, I need to reorder. I need to, re- I need to reorder everything. Here we go. So we have the revenge, the power, the money, and we have, uh, oh, and finally we have for all the children of the world to join hands and sing together in spirit of harmony 
in peace. Steve Martin, gotta love him. He begins and he ends very well, supposedly, that was a, if that's an important thing to you. But the middle portion really seems to be dealing with him wanting to be powerful, right? It's a joke, it's funny. But I think when we come to prayer, maybe we don't go that far. But there is a sense in which our misunderstanding of prayer stems from the fact that maybe we haven't invited the Father to prayer, right? Maybe we're praying for ourselves, we're praying out of ourselves. And so this morning, what we're going to see in this passage as we get ready for the Lord's Prayer the next four weeks is this. God is our Father. He is perfect and He loves you. And because of this, we can pray with confidence. Four things from this passage. The initial example, kind of a weird outline, so if you want to write it. Initial example, an initial solution, that's number two. Then a second example, and then the full solution. Now I split the examples up for a reason, because Jesus did, but he gives two examples, and as we hear the, these examples of how not to pray, it's it, what, coming from last week, you have to remember, we are prone to these problems. Jesus is talking to disciples. So the best of you in this room, the ones that think you really love Jesus, need this more than anybody. And then the rest of us, or rest, whoever else might be in the room, you also need it, because we all need Jesus. So, we need to hear these examples. I say that because there's a tendency to think, oh, I don't do either of those, we're good. So let's start with the first example. In verse 1, he says, be careful of practicing your religion in front of people. That's the, that's the kind of backdrop. And then he gives this example, he says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because they love to stand and pray in front of people, right? It's not that they're praying in the synagogues or the streets, but it's that they're doing it in order to be seen. And he says they even love this, right? And so right now, in case I forget to, to do this later, and I probably will or won't, I don't know, um, he's not saying it's wrong to pray in front of people. So I'll, t- I'll try to remember to deal with that a little later, but I think a lot of people think, oh, never pray in front of people. Well, Pete, sorry, I just asked you to pray. He came up and had this beautiful prayer. So there is your reward. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying don't do that as that being your all, your end all, your, the love of your praying in front of people. What he is saying that is wrong is that you find your religion in the things you do publicly. And this is a problem for all of us. Because most every one of you, unless this is your absolute first time into a church ever, came because you think there's value to this. And there is value. Right? And we're all engaging in worship and there's value. But Jesus is saying, be very, very careful. Because the closer you get to that value, there's something else that sneaks in and that is our beginning to quantify our own spirituality by this activity. Or by the prayer group we go to. Or the small group we're involved in. So, there's this, deep, there's this sense in which we begin to measure ourselves not by Christ, not by... Not by the intimacy we have with God, though that's not a measuring point, but by the fact that we do things. Um, I was talking to Emily about this, and she reminded me of a of an article or a study we read years ago. But we had a couple that we were that are dear to us in our life that or were when they were together, who were heavily involved in PDA, public display of affection. Right? Is that what? Is the, what do you all call? What do the millennials call that now? The, what's the new term? Anyway. 
PDA, hate PDA. It's not, not your phone anymore, it's a smartphone. It's when people in, in groups, two people act as if they're all alone, like in their bedroom. They start to hug and kiss. And I want to say this right now. This is an illustration. But if you do it, stop. Because nobody likes it. Everybody else hates what you're doing. The point of the study, the point of the article is that these people, rather than having great intimacy or even somewhat neutral intimacy, probably have like zero intimacy. They go home and that's it. All their affection was done at Frontier City or wherever. Okay. Well, what's the point? Well, that's a, that's a picture of, I think, people who place their value in our outward religion. The question of this passage is, when you go home, where's your faith? Right? Here, we're singing, maybe we've learned the, the, the lingo, we go to RUF, we, we go to our small group, at the office we have it, our verses up on the wall, but when we're home, does our religion follow us there? Does our faith follow us? That's the first example. Now, the apparent solution. This is awkward. I'm giving you a solution. Now we go back to another problem. I understand that. The apparent solution is, Jesus says, go into your room, into secret, and make this time a time of private prayer. Okay? That's the solution Jesus offers us. Um... And so the risk with that again, and I've already alluded to this, is that we reduce our public display of affection to God, not to commingle that with the weird uh, illustration, but we, so we don't want to reduce that and then still go home and have a really cruddy prayer life, okay? So it's an apparent solution. We're going to talk about the full solution later, but here's why this is an apparent solution at first. If all we do when we read the sermon is make it into law, we've lost the sermon. And last week, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is giving. Well, how do I do that, right? At least this one you can kind of do. I mean, this is not just a full-on metaphor. There's some sincerity in the idea that you go into your privacy, into your home or your inner room. But the problem, again, when we come to the sermon is we can't turn it into perfect law. Jesus is not doing that. And so be careful of that as well because the real issue in the, in the, the heart the picture, the backdrop behind all of the Sermon of the Mount is sin and the seediness of sin. And the way sin in our culture, which pretty much has dropped it completely as a word, the way Christianity pretty much approaches it is as the things you do that are wrong. We have a confession of sin. We privately confess. What are you confessing? Most of us, if we're doing anything at that time, we're probably confessing actual things we did wrong. Words, thoughts, and deeds. But the picture in the Bible of sin and of this sermon is much, I think, darker. Uh, It's much deeper. The fact that a person can pray, go into their actual room and do everything Jesus is saying, and still be sinning. Still have a fleshly motive. That is what Jesus is talking about. When He says, beware, He's not saying, you, if you follow my rules, will eventually get to a place where you don't do any of this. He's saying, be aware of it. Be aware of your proneness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, on this passage, says, if you want to see a picture of sin, look at a saint in his or her room, on his or her knees, 
praying, devoted and devout, and pouring out their tears before the Lord. And he says, you know what's going to happen, unfortunately? This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. This isn't Ryan. This isn't Sonship. This isn't... This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, that person in their heart is secretly feeling proud. A little bit proud. A little bit like, look what I'm doing. I'm doing, you know, even though I'm weeping right now, this is good. This is good. I think a test of this would be if you pray regularly, and that is something hopefully that you have as a repertoire of your spiritual disciplines, which we want, right? How do you feel when you haven't prayed? When you get up and you rush out and you haven't had that time? Well, you might say, well, I don't feel great because I haven't had my intimacy. And that's possible. I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong. But often I think there's that legal thing. Like, ooh, like the rabbit's foot. Like, I left without my thing. And what if I get in a car accident now? I didn't have my prayer time. Or, you know, what if someone asks me a deep question and I have to answer them and I haven't prayed first? I think we turn, even our prayer time can be turned into sinful self-absorption if we're not careful. And that's what he is saying. So that's why I call that the apparent solution initially. Because we want to go into the deeper problem, which he talks about with the Gentiles. Point three, we're moving rapidly, thankfully. I heard a laugh. The Gentiles, Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. This is interesting, just to even thought that he brings up Gentiles. Uh, he brought them up once before, in chapter 5 when he said, love your enemies. Because if all you do is love those people who love you, you're being like the Gentiles. What is Jesus saying? He's not saying he hates Gentiles. He actually came to draw us, the Gentiles, into his church. Okay, He is concerned for Gentiles, right? Because uh, in Jonah, if you read the end of Jonah, um, God tells him the Ninevites, Gentiles, uh, they have they don't know their left hand from their right hand, and they have much cattle. In other words, they're powerful and they're clueless. So he's using that as an example, and so Jesus is both concerned for how Gentiles are praying, but he also knows that the Jews will hate the very comparison. So he's saying, beware that you don't do the thing that the people you absolutely hate are doing, even though you shouldn't hate them. What are they doing then? What is it the Gentiles are doing wrong? And how do we do this? How, do you, how did the disciples do this and how do we do this? The word is, uh, in, your, in the ESV at least, do not be like the Gentiles for they heap up empty phrases. This Greek word appears one time in the New Testament and it has a range of meaning from using the same words over and over, speaking without thinking, um, maybe even to babble. So maybe the words themselves have no meaning for you. So commentators kind of have a spectrum. On one end, it would be um, talking in such a way that maybe you recap over and over and over, showing a lack of confidence. That would be kind of the best example, best case scenario. The middle would be like almost uh, how modern tongues sometimes are done, where there's no idea what's being said. The person doesn't know what's being said. I'm not right now making any claims that there's no such thing as just hear me out. But sometimes people pray and you're like, is there any benefit in that? All the way to the final side of the extreme, which would be something along the lines of abracadabra. Kind of like, I'm praying this. Boom, God, do something. I prayed. I did what I was supposed to. Well, what does that mean for us? 
we can treat prayers like the, an end in of themselves. We've gone into our prayer room. Gentiles were in their private rooms. But they might have had an idol sitting there. And you can pray, and you're, you're going through the motions, and maybe you're saying even good words, but they don't mean anything anymore. Why? Maybe because God has not been invited in. Or the God that you think you're praying to is not the real God. One of my favorite movies is uh, Braveheart. I was flipping channels. I came across it again. It's getting time to show Coleman. He loves movies, so I'm like, okay. Maybe I'll show him the one on TV so it doesn't have that one scene. Um, so anyway, I don't mind all the blood and guts. That's fine. It's just that one scene. Okay, but for the rest of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Scotland is trying to leave England. The king, Longshanks, uh, has just had one of his cities plundered by William Wallace, and the person overseeing it was the king's son, this prince. And he's this timid, weak guy. And he's up in his room, and he's with another guy, uh, his buddy. And they're up in the room, and it's this cold, crazy, chamber-looking, brick, stony room. And up comes the steps, you hear dad is coming, you know, long shanks, step by step. And he walks in. And of course, in this scene, he has dignity. And he's the king. His, he's thinking. You can tell the way he's interpreting information is very wise for what he does. But he's also coughing. He's coming down with an illness. He's old. He's passe. And, and the son is just thinking he's clueless. And so there's this awkward scene. And then the son's buddy, you know, steps in. Um, I don't want to tell the whole story. I'll just say this. The buddy steps in and, and opens his mouth and gets punished for it. Okay, That's what happens to that guy. But what you are left feeling with is this poor son who is trying to both fit in and really take over for the father and yet disdains him at the same time. And I think if you're honest, when you look at your prayer life, you may not think you have those feelings. But if you are a boring prayer-er to having no prayer at all, then you must have those views. There's no other way to answer that process, that problem, that condition, than to say your view of God is wrong. And my view of God is often wrong. Now the good news as Christians is we can be saved and struggle with unbelief. So that's the good news. You haven't lost your salvation. You've just lost your way. You've lost the beauty of your Father. So what is the full solution then? This is the best point, I promise. We're going to go back into the solution Jesus offers, and now we're going to look at it from the perspective of the fact that we are sinful and we are approaching our Heavenly Father who loves us. And there's this word right there. Um, it says, thus when you... No, that's the wrong passage. Sorry, let's go back down. Verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. I don't like to say translations are wrong. It's just not a great thing. And this isn't wrong. It's just different. Your room in a modern, suburban, American sense means my bedroom. I've got a closet. I've got a window. I've got a door. It's on the outskirts. The actual Greek word is uh, tameon, something like that. Later I'll be corrected. I can be corrected by those that know Greek. 
I'm looking at you, Thomas. The meaning of it is the secret room. What this room was, and it, again, this is not used often in the New Testament, but what that room is, it was a room in the middle of the structure that had one door, it was latchable, and it was where you stored valuable things, even treasures. So it was a very private place, but it wasn't the kind of private place you would open every morning and go in and close the door. So it had to sound weird. It was a place where you would go in and there would be things that your family thinks are very valuable. Right? Think about a few verses later in Matthew 6.19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. This room is a room that thieves would naturally want to break into. It wasn't a, there wasn't a window. It wasn't easy access. They'd break in, and whatever was in there was a value. And it was treasure. And, and the, the interesting thing is I started thinking about that. If that's true, how does that kind of help us understand this more and more? What do we treasure? And I know in a, it'll be a few weeks before we come to 619 where Jesus talks about that specifically. But I was thinking about American Pickers. Anyone watch American Pickers? I used to love that show. After about 800 of them, they're the same. The Pickers are, if you don't know, they're guys that go out, you know, they, they knock on a door. You've got a lot of junk. Can we look around? They collect things. And what they do is they sell it, right? They buy low and they sell high. They're entrepreneurs. And they're just kind of going through this stuff that you and I would be like, trash can, trash can, trash can. Ah, maybe. They're going, oh, you know what this is? And they're just enamored by everything. But the reason they're enamored is a few things. One, it might be something they loved as a child. Every now and then, I played with that. 98% of the time, it's because they have a buyer. right? They know there's value. But the value of the thing they find is simply because they know someone else, a person, will pay for it. right? It's like Antiques Roadshow. I love these kind of shows, obviously. You know, someone walks in, this is what my grandma is, this is amazing. And if it's like, this is worth... Hundreds of thousands of dollars, they like, you know, okay. But if it's like, I'm, I hate to tell you, I hate to be, you know, bear the bad news, there's a million of those, you know, worth five bucks. It's like, oh, oh. It's like the treasure has lost its value, right? Because people don't deem it important. And that's the whole point of this passage, this whole section. Are you treasuring things because people find value or are you looking to the one that is truly worthy of treasure, God? What is the condition of your inner room? Not in your home, though that would be, we'll talk about that in a minute, but your heart. Are you someone who longs to be with God? And if not, it's because we see him like long shanks or something else. You can choose a lot of movies and have false looks of, of a father. But let's look at the Bible, Galatians 4, 4. But when the, time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I almost put that in that point about the false solution or the partial solution. 
which sounds crazy because that's the gospel, but here's why. I'm afraid that often, maybe in my teaching and the teaching we all love, we hear the gospel and we get really excited, but we have two channels. Kind of like an AM and FM receiver. So while we're at church, that was awesome. Right? Abba Father, I'm adopted. While we're at work, eh, you know, I've got a lot to do. I've got a meeting coming up, I'm heading up, I've got a promotion to get. Or while I'm at home, I've got responsibility. Um, whatever it is, are you living out of different channels? Later we're going to see you cannot serve both God and anything else. So the reason sometimes I think our prayer life is so boring is because we theologically give assent to this, but it really means nothing. We don't treasure this. We don't treasure it. I'm scared of what it might mean uh, personally. It's so easy for me to preach and talk about it and later go, remember we still have to do a lot of other stuff to kind of protect ourselves, take care of ourselves. And it's, it's true. But do I have the spiritual maturity to go, I'm treasuring that. That's got my focus. My heart is not with the Lord. He is no longer a source of comfort, even if I have a somewhat right theology for the moment. Does that make sense? What are you treasuring? He says, come into that room and the God who sees you will come in and reward you. We talked about that last week. He will reward you. We just sang that song early, a minute ago. Shouldn't do anything like this on the fly. Oh, praise Him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward. And last week we talked about how rewards are not something you get separate from the thing, like the pickers. I found a duck. It's made in the 50s. I'll sell it for 200 bucks. I got $200. I got rid of the duck. It's like a reward, but I don't care about the duck anymore. Whereas, he, you know, remember Lewis said marriage is the reward of a relationship, right? And so we've entered into this relationship with our Heavenly Father, and the, what's the reward? Everything. Everything. There, there's not one problem in your life that isn't met in Christ. And if you think there is, your treasure is misplaced. Not even one problem. And I remember hearing it the first time. It's been maybe 15 years ago. And my wife and I would go throughout the day and the weeks going, what about this? What about that? How is God going to meet that problem? I, mean, I still need that, right? But Jesus is calling us to a different kingdom. And as long as we think there's this kind of side-by-side deal going on, AM and FM channels going on. You really don't have the, the one. You're just pretending. And I think, and I know it's unpopular, and it's hard to preach, but Jesus is saying, I want all of you. Not just numerically all of you, but all of your being. Everything in you. That is where prayer will come from. That is where prayer gets rich. And I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and I'm going to give very specific application because my fear is we walk out, we change the channel, and we forget everything. And then maybe next week we hope there's some kind of continuation. We are going into the Lord's Prayer for four weeks. My goal would be that you all would say, you know what I'm going to do for at least four weeks? I'm going to pray. Some of you pray a lot. That's wonderful. Some of you pray a little, and some of you just don't even do it. right? And that's okay. It's better to be honest with where you are. 
than just deceive yourself, right? So here we are. I'm inviting all of us, including myself, to venture into a four-week prayer improvement model. And I'm not kidding. All right. First step. I'm not making a joke now. Because I don't ever do this. Everyone's like, what's a joke? There's no joke. First step, set up your room. Right? I think Jesus is being serious. So unlike the hand example with giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, which is a complete metaphor. When he gets to fasting, he says, you know, fix your hair. Dress up. Make it normal. That's a completely honest statement. There's no imagery. This is a little bit of both. We've already talked about the fact that it's this inner room, it's this chamber, but he also really means have a place where you go. So, setting up your room. Uh, have a time. How many of you right now can think of the time you try to pray? I recommend the morning. I'm getting legalistic, but that's okay. When you get there, you can repent of it. Um, you need to have, I think morning time is the best time because that's the only time of the day that you control. Every other time is out of your control. I'll pray at lunch. Oh, we had a meeting. We went along. I'll pray at night. I'm tired. Something happened. I think you ought to pray at night, but morning time is just an ideal time. College students, if your morning time is 1 p.m., great. That's your morning time. Start there. Space. Try to find a space. Now, here's a suggestion I have yet to follow, but it's a really good one, and I'm going to start four weeks. Here we go. The night before, have your Bible at your chair. You don't want to wake up and go, where's my Bible? Can't find my Bible. Can't find anything. Set your alarm. You know, Clear the clutter. There's like a, a utility bill sitting there. Remove it because you'll be really distracted. Also, don't have like PDAs. Okay, that was bad since we had that illustration. Don't have technology nearby so you're not, te- you're not tempted. This is all step one, okay? Setting it up. But the last part of step one is when you enter that space, you enter in the gospel. Find a quote, a scripture that we've read to. We've read one from Galatians 4 and read it. I am a son, I am a daughter of the king, he loves me. You start there, right? That's step one. You're entering this moment not as a person who's bad at prayer, who feels kind of tired, whose knees aching, who whatever. It's, I'm a child of the king. Step two, remove false treasure. So here's this room in this house that Jesus is describing that apparently has storage of some kind of value. And he's saying, walk in there and pray. Unlike our suburban mansions, I don't think there's a lot of empty square feet. So to actually do that, you would have had to take stuff out, right? Can you imagine? Do we really need this thing? Grandma's thing. Take it out. Spiritually. Repent. Here you are sitting before the, with the Lord present. Where is your heart going? What's drawing your mind? What's, what's pulling you out of this moment? Where are your anxieties? Where are your treasures? Now, in that moment, if it's technicolored sin, like I'm doing really bad things, which a lot of us are doing, repent. But don't just think of that only. Maybe it's simply, I'm just distracted. I'm, I'm busy. Um, my heart's busy. You know, what is it that's drawing? What is it that's drawing you? Is it something that day you can't wait to turn on the TV to get this behind you to read the book, whatever you want to do? Examine those things and repent. Okay, that's step two. Step three is have the Bible. When you pray, um, we need our Bibles when we pray. 
I think one of the biggest problems with prayer, and Tim, some of this is out of Tim Keller's book on prayer, which I highly recommend, but I warn you, don't go buy it and then not pray these four weeks because you bought the book and you're reading it. Okay, wait, wait for four weeks, then buy the book. Um, but the language of God and the language of prayer is our scripture. Are we feeding on scripture? I get overwhelmed by that. What do I do? Bible plan? How do I study? Memorization? Okay. I would start with the concept of meditation. Start with the fact that so many prayer ideas are read your Bible and then pray. Keller, borrowing from Augustine and Calvin and Luther, is saying, look, you need to chew on the Scripture. And chew on it and meditate. There's different ways to do that through memorization, uh, repeating words separately. For example, by Him we cry, Abba, Father. By Him we cry, Abba, Father. By Him we cry, Abba, Father. See what I'm saying? And you go through each word and you dwell on it. By Him we cry, Abba, Father. And then by Him we cry, Abba. That's a type of meditation. It's slowing you down. It's making you think. You're using your mind and you're engaging the Scripture. And what these great giants of the faith are saying is you're warming up your heart for prayer. And then you pray. We're going to go through the Lord's Prayer, but I think part of this, uh, the fourth step and the part of this four-week process would be every day to pray the Lord's Prayer. Open up to Matthew 6, read it, but take each quote. Maybe you do one on Monday, then the next part on Tuesday, however you want to do it. But read it, slow down, and ask, what does this mean? How do I praise God with this? How do I repent with this? And what sort of petitions does this lead to? It's a lot to do. Okay? But if you all picked up a hobby tomorrow that you don't have today, you'd buy 82 books, join 62 websites, right? A club. There'd be a club once a week. You'd give up a month in the summer. So certainly with prayer, we can take it seriously. So that's our application. Four weeks of setting up time repenting, opening up the Scripture and really reading. Um, if all you do tomorrow morning is pick a passage that you've heard a trillion times, but you kind of like it, a psalm, something else, do that. Be easy on yourself. That's like a thousand percent better than doing nothing, right? And I'm sure that's bad math. Your Father loves you. He understands my sin in your sin as being a desire to get him away from us. He understands that. That's why he sent Jesus. And he didn't send Jesus to save you on one particular day, but for the rest of your life it's up to you. He is constantly pursuing you, constantly wooing you,